BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. And it would just be random periods throughout that it's just like, okay, yep, I'm in a wheelchair. I think I just kind of took the bull by its horns and was like, if this is going to be the life I'm going to live... I can't let myself get so frustrated about every little thing or for the rest of my life, I'm going to just live in pure and utter frustration. And I don't want that. Hey, everybody, and welcome to RealPod. I'm Victoria Garrick, former D1 athlete and mental health and body image advocate, and I'll be your host. We've got awesome guests, weekly inspiration, and are bringing you the realest conversations about everything and anything. Now let's get real. Welcome back to RealPod. Joining us today is Paralympic gold medalist, Mallory Wegman. I'm very excited for you guys to listen to this. Mallory was literally the coolest person. She's so calm, so smart, and just overall an awesome person. She is a professional and Olympic swimmer who has competed in the 2012 and 2016 Paralympic Games. And Mallory has had quite an incredible journey and has overcome a lot of obstacles. At the age of 18, Mallory was experiencing back pain. And so she went into the hospital for a series of epidural shots And the last shot left her completely paralyzed from the waist down. But despite this life-changing moment in her life, Mallory has went on to make history, breaking Olympic records as a swimmer, and being an inspiration to so many people out there. So I can't wait for you guys to hear this interview. Mallory, it was a pleasure to have you, and let's get started. I'm just really grateful for your time today and to talk about everything you've been through. Because it's so inspiring and there is so much that I feel so many of us need to learn and probably that you learned just entering this athletic world and the space of having a disability. I mean, even I felt terrible when I realized the entrance to our house and I thought I can't even like properly welcome this guest. We're going to have to bring her around the back. And it's just, I mean, but you probably see in your everyday life how, how these things are not okay and how, how much there is to change. And I think it's just adapting too, though, right? right? I mean, when you talk about it, like we all we all go through different circumstances that just raise our awareness to different things in life that yeah. we wouldn't know about. And so it's it's always interesting how people will apologize because there's a step, and it's like, I mean, I get it, but it's a house, right? <laughs> all homes have step. My home has a step, right. <laughs> so we have a lift, but not everybody's going to have a lift in their home for that one odd chance that they may have somebody come over who happens to be in a wheelchair. <laughs> yeah. So you just kind of like. Okay, but, but I, you make it work. And I, but I bet that gets kind of annoying. You know, it is an interesting thing. I think in in public, it's a little bit more 
frustrating at times. I think the time where it gets frustrating is when you become an instant inspiration just because you're doing something normal, like shopping at the grocery store. It's like, okay, that's cool. Or when I was first injured and 21 and living on a college campus, like out on a Friday night doing what 21 year olds on college campuses do. And people at the bar would be like, you're such an inspiration. I'm like, why? Cause I'm drinking on a Friday night with my friends. Like, yeah. let's go after it. I mean, right. it just, I think some of that sometimes it's just kind of like, I get the sentiment, but I think, you know, it's kind of like, but why really when you break down just because I happen to be in a chair and I'm out and about, and that goes against what we say our stigma in society is. Right. And I almost feel like, and Dawn, I'll put words in your mouth, but when people would view that, it's like, oh, you know, it's like this, neg- this, this connotation of, I feel so bad for her, but she's doing it. So I shouldn't feel shitty about my life. A hundred percent. People all the time, you get the comment of like, oh, I could have it so much worse. And it's like, well, that's just implying that my life must be miserable because I'm on four wheels. Yeah. And I don't think people stop and slow down enough to realize what that means, what they're saying. And I think that's some of it. I mean, I've talked so much lately about these misconceptions and I, I love your misconception love, Monday. Ah, I love I sharing them. And yeah. what's so funny is for years I didn't because it was like, I didn't know that I wanted to share all these offhand comments that I got because it's not out of self pity or wanting to people feel bad that sometimes people just suck. It's, right. it's more of the education that comes with it of maybe causing somebody who happens to read that weeks to stop and think like, Oh, I wouldn't have thought of that or realize that, you know, yes, a lot of them stem from conversations around, my physical disability, but we all know circumstance. Like we all know having a really rough day. We all know going through something traumatic. You don't have to be in a wheelchair and have been paralyzed at 18 to understand what trauma is in your life. We've all experienced that. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's just trying to like have that conversation from a different lens, like you've talked about and, you know, being able to really just spark a conversation and see where it goes. And so Misconception Monday was born and we spark them. We talk about the guy in the grocery store that said, it must be so miserable to live life like that. Did as he, he motioned, Oh yeah. As What's, he motioned to my as wheelchair. The boyfriend would say, where's the field awareness? Where's None. the field awareness? None. Yeah. And you're just, I, yeah. Mm. I was like, I'm just in Trader Joe's pushing my shopping cart, going to produce, right. but hi. Yeah. I also okay. juggle. Uh, yeah. Adults and jokes. Yeah. Anything else we want to talk about? Oh, Stranger. Gosh, I'm so sorry that you have to deal with that, but I am glad that you are using your voice and sharing those experiences because it has to be from someone like you to, for, for people like me to properly be educated on the way that you feel. Yeah. Um, cause it is something that is like unimaginable what you went through and watching your story and that's why I'm very eager to dive into everything today because it is something that very few people would experience, especially the way you did. And I can only imagine the type of woman and athlete you've become because of the resiliency and, you know, all of that bravery you showed in handling what was thrown at you. Yeah. And I do know, I was, I know you talk about January 21st and I remember that now from all of your interviews and that was actually very recent. I mean, we're only in February right now. What is that day like for you when that anniversary comes around, if that's how you refer to it and you think back on what happened? Yeah. A hundred percent. You know, we now have started celebrating January 21st. So we actually started it with my one year. Um, my family and I made the decision that, We had to find a way to celebrate the things that have come into our life following that day versus grieve the things that we perceive as lost on that day. And so that was tough 
but I love that we start it as quick as a year. It doesn't mean that that day rolls around and everything's just hunky-dory and I'm all happy-go-lucky. There's years that it's hard and there's years that it's hard that I have, you know, I go to the day and I'm like, oh, this is going to be, you know, just another day. We're going to have dinner as a family and celebrate some cool stuff. And I wake up in the morning and I'm a, I'm a mess. And so this year we just celebrated my 12th year and it was an interesting one. You know, I go in and I don't think I always am looking back at what life was like before January 21st of 2008, but there are days where it's hard to not go down the tunnel of like, what if I just would have gone back to bed that day? Mm-hmm. What would have happened in my life? I, and that's an interesting thing. We always yes. ask what if. And I want to dive into that because I have so many questions. And if you don't mind, sort of. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. It was a time in my life that I've started sharing with people recently of when you really think about it. When we're 18, we're freshly graduated high school, right? So I graduated high school June of 2007. You just went to prom. You know, all (laughs) the things. It's the year after high school and, you know, I'm now getting ready to turn 19 and we're kind of always in this situation, I feel like at that point in our life where society expects us to have it all figured out. It's like you turn 18, you graduate high school and you're supposed to know what you want to do with the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. And how many 18 and 19 and 20 year olds, I mean, heck, how many 30 year olds know what they're going to do for the rest of their life? Right. And I think that pressure is, and the expectation that comes with it is so unreachable at times. And so, you know, I was kind of juggling with all of that of what was it that I wanted to do? I was kind of doing a gap year, living at home, going to community college, figuring out where I wanted to transfer to for a four-year university and figuring life out. And then that day came and it's just like, you never anticipate what's going to happen. And so it was Monday, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. I had the day off from class. It was the second week of the new semester. And you were dealing with normal athlete injuries, right? You had shingles and back pain. I mean, I have back pain. It was like nothing crazy. Right. It was just back pain. Um, And so they were doing epidural injections to help treat it. And I was going in for my third one. And I was paralyzed from the injection that day. And that was really difficult. I think it was difficult because unfortunately... I remember everything about the moment I was paralyzed because I was awake for it. And my dad was with me. My dad was standing at the head of the procedure table when it happened. And so I'm the baby of three girls. My dad and I are naturally close. We're incredibly close after that day just because we shared that moment together. Forgive me for asking this if it's common sense, but epidurals, is there always a chance that this could be the result? Was this a very rare case? Is something you knew going into the epidural could happen? Yeah, it's tough. It depends on how they're doing it. Depends on the mechanics. Depends on a lot of different factors. In my situation, the way in which I ended up being paralyzed wasn't unfortunately due to a complication. Um, We still don't 100% 12 years later know exactly what went wrong in that moment. There's theories and all that, but I think that's one thing that when I was moving forward from that day, I had to find a way to have closure too. And, you know, we, we all know trauma. And when we go through trauma, we search for those whys and the what ifs and all of this. And ultimately somewhere along the way, closure is what allows us to move forward. Mm -hmm. But I think it was that realization that closure is not always given to us. And sometimes we have to allow ourselves to create our own closure. That was kind of what I found myself doing. I just had to find a way to move forward and create closure and know I may never have a perfect answer to exactly what happened, Mm -hmm. but that's okay. And frankly, at this point, 12 years later, it's not going to change what I'm doing or who I am or what I'm going to become. It's it's just a part of me, but it's not what defines me. Right. And that moment with your dad, were you laying on a hospital bed with the doctors there? 
what happened with your legs in that moment? Yeah. So it was, um, well, so dad was a, dad was in the room and it was tough. I mean, we didn't know right away, but we should have. And in hindsight, 2020, we know the moment it happened. Um, but it took a little time for us to realize the extent of what all happened just because you do go numb when you get injections like that. And so we weren't hundred percent sure until probably in the next couple of days following really once I was admitted to the hospital that night, my mom's a nurse and I could tell she knew something was going on. And so after this appointment, you're not able to walk and you're thinking to yourself, Oh, this might just be the epidural doing its thing. And maybe I'll walk tomorrow or this will go through my system. Yeah. There was definitely a period where I was hoping, you know, it's going to wear off. It's going to, everything's going to go away and I'm going to go home tomorrow. And obviously some of that's wishful thinking the longer it gets out. And so I think the real understanding was it was a day procedure. I ended up admitted to the hospital overnight and I woke up on January 22nd and I still couldn't feel or move my legs. And that was kind of the moment where it was like, okay, something, something is wrong. And so a lot of it from that point on was just really figuring out what do we do from here? And like, Mm -hmm. what are those steps? And just like anything, it's, you know, you've got to take it one step at a time. And so at that point it was obviously I was an emotional wreck, but it's like, okay, but I broke it down into, all right, well, if this is what's going on, what are we going to do tomorrow? And then after tomorrow, what are we going to do the next day and on down the line? And unfortunately, ultimately I went home six weeks later, still in a wheelchair. And it didn't seem that walking was in my cards at that point. And so we started finding ways to figure out how to wrap our head around potentially what could be our new normal and how does life look moving forward from that point. And that's when I found swimming. Had you ever had any mental health issues prior to this, like any depression or anxiety, something that really was difficult for you to deal with, or was this emotionally the first time in your life that you really experienced some sort of trauma? So my family had gone through stuff when I was a kid and whatnot. Um, not really things that I really publicly talked about. When you don't, don't feel um, like you have to do that. Yeah. <laughs> but we definitely went through our fair share in battling life and death with a loved one. So it was not new to us. So I think that's, you know, when people talk about like, and ask the question of, well, how did you move on so quickly? Because seemingly when you read about my story, like I moved on pretty quickly. And right. I think a lot of that was just the realization that like, okay, what happened on January 21st, 2008 was horrible. And I'm not minimizing the trauma that came with it. But with that said, I had watched somebody I loved so dearly fight life and death for years, who fortunately is still with us. But I watched that and realized like, okay, yeah, so I can't feel my legs. I can't move my legs. Right now I'm in a wheelchair. Life is looking different. And that's those immediate days, weeks, and months following. But then there's also that realization of like, but I'm alive. Mm -hmm. Like, in the scheme of things, this could be so much worse. Mm-hmm. And I think having experienced trauma before is what gave me a perspective, not to minimize the enormity of what had happened in my life, but gave me perspective to understand that like I could still create a future. If this was the end game, I could still create a future and have a fulfilling life. Do you also credit some of that to just growing up an athlete and always having that mindset of, I can handle any situation. I can get through this. I can figure it out. I would have to imagine that growing up a competitor played in your advantage mentally in this situation. A hundred percent. I think athletics was a huge part of, obviously it was a big part of who I was as a kid. Um, I'm the baby of three girls and my two older sisters swam competitively. And so when I was seven, I did the whole like, okay, I'm at the pool every day with them anyways. I might as well jump in and swim. Yeah. And so I started swimming and 
I just loved the water. I was never like the all state swimmer. And, you know, I was varsity all four years of high school and I was good, but I wasn't looking to go scholarship D one by any means, but I just thoroughly loved the sport. And I think the things that I learned through the sport of swimming are what gave me the strength to get through my paralysis. But I also will say that I was really fortunate to find the sport of swimming again, mm-hmm. quite quickly after I was injured, I was in the water again at two and a half months after my paralysis. How did that come into play? Were you thinking, was that someone saying, you know, you could still do the thing you love? So I totally written swimming off with a lot of other things in my life that I just assumed. I'm like, oh, well, I'll never do this again. Cause I just didn't know. What, what are I some of the know. things you thought you couldn't do again? Oh gosh. I never thought I would date. <laughs> I never thought that I would go back to school. I was stubborn and saying, I'm not going back to school until I can physically step foot into a classroom. Um, I didn't know if I would get like, be able to live an independent life. Like I just didn't know what would driving look like, what would living on my own look like, what would pretty much everything I do now. I had no idea that I would be able to do when it first happened, because when something like that happens and it's so unfamiliar with everything, you know, you just, you don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, it took me 45 minutes to put pants on for the first time after I was paralyzed and they were a size extra large sweatpants and I'm like a size two. Mm -hmm. So They were ginormous on me and I couldn't figure out how to get them on. Mm -hmm. Like everything was a learning curve. Um, But I think that getting back in the water, for me, it really came in trials for the 2008 Paralympic Games were in Minnesota. And when I was injured, my family and I didn't know anything about adaptive sport, which is like embarrassing to admit at this point in my life. We didn't know about the Paralympic movement, which is also embarrassing to admit There was so much of that world we were completely unaware of. And there was a newspaper article that Saturday in the paper and my sister saw it and she was like, fine. The final night of finals for trials are happening tonight at the university of Minnesota for Paralympic trials. Yeah. And she's like, we should, we should go watch. And I was like, I don't really want to. It was like the first weekend in April, it was snowing. I mean, lovely Minnesota. Mm -hmm. Of course it's snowing in April. I was still figuring out how I was wheeling in a wheelchair on dry let alone like on the sidewalks, getting to campus in snow, Mm -hmm. everything about it just sounded ridiculous. I was like, no, I'm going to lay with the dog on the couch and watch chick flicks. (laughs) Like I'm not having it. And I ended up going to the pool that night because I lose all my battles with my loved ones who are those, you know, pushy, encouraging family members. And so Kristen and I went to the pool that night and I'll forever remember I leaned over that railing and I saw the pool deck for the first time when we got there. And it was the first time I truly saw adaptive sport in action. And I saw athlete after athlete after athlete fighting for their chance to represent Team USA at the 2008 Games. And I was like, this is really cool. And I leaned over to my sister. I was like, maybe I could swim again. Like, this is awesome. Right. And I met a coach that night. And that was Saturday night. And Monday afternoon, I was at practice. No intention to actually get in the water. Mm -hmm. I didn't bring my suit. I was like, we're just going to show up. Dad brought me because I wasn't driving. And we were just going to chat and about five minutes in, Jim was like, all right, let's get in the water because it was just a Minnesota swimming club team. And, you know, he didn't know me any differently. He saw the chair and like to him, it wasn't some big shocking new thing. It was just a swimmer showed up on a pool deck wanting to swim. And one of my high school teammates was a Minnesota gopher and the college practice had just finished. And she came out of her locker room with a suit, cap and goggles. And I ended up getting in the water that day. It was wow. April 8th of 2008. When you got in the water that day, I could imagine you felt such a sense of freedom. A hundred percent. 
to yeah. just be there. I mean, just being in a pool and you have, you're not, you're, you are in control of every movement you're making and not to mention how great is it that this was the sport that you grew up loving, yep. right? You didn't have to just try something new. Yep. Wow. And how did that first practice go? I swam for 30 minutes. Um, I was terrified about the idea of getting in. Like it took some building up of courage really? to actually get in. And then I got in, I took a few strokes and I was like, this is the best thing ever. Like that was my aha moment where I was like, I'm going to be okay. Like whatever happens, I'm going to be okay. And so I swam for about 30 minutes that day, but I went back every day after. And in about two weeks, I was swimming my first full two hour workout with the team. And six weeks later, I swam my first meet and I raced like eight and nine year old kids. It was just an open. So it was all based on times and I didn't have times. And I was one of the only individuals with a disability on the pool deck. It was just like a quintessential Minnesota swimming club meet. And I DFL'd. I got last in every single thing. I mean, I got my butt handed to me by these eight and nine year old kids. Wow. They were just hammering it. And I think that was the moment where I was like, although I'm a competitor, it didn't really seem to matter. I was just so happy to be back to doing something I love. So you didn't, and like you said this before, from your story, it seems like you moved on very quickly. So there were no big frustrations or just those oh. crying breakdowns or I could imagine that day you're so excited and then you look and you're like I I used to be able to just absolutely lap this eight-year-old and now I've lost but yeah. I've been working so hard I think there was there definitely was but at that time I was so happy to just feel joy like to be happy and to find myself looking forward to something versus constantly looking back at everything from before January 21st, 2008. And so in those initial weeks and months after my paralysis, I felt like each time I conquered something, it was traction that I was getting. And so, yeah, did I get beat by eight, nine-year-olds? Sure. But I was in the pool racing, which two and a half months prior when I was freshly paralyzed laying in a hospital bed, I never thought I would be doing that. And so I was... I was finding momentum each time I had a little win, each time I did something new for the first time. And each time I got to experience something new and, and trying to hold on to that to give me the strength. It's like, okay, one baby steps checked off. Now let's go tackle another one and another one. And I would say for me, the emotions around my paralysis, it's healing's not a chronological thing. Like we don't grieve in this perfect little order. And although we think we should, it's just not how it works. <laughs> and so I think for me, it's, yes, did I move on seemingly quick in the first handful of months? I did. And I'll still admit that I did. And frankly, I think I truly did. I was sad at times and frustrated. Of course, I'm, I'm human. But I think I had a little bit more of a delayed reaction. And it would just be random periods throughout that it's just like, oh, okay, yep, I'm in a wheelchair. And that's okay. But for the most part, I think I just kind of took the bull by its horns and was like, if this is going to be the life I'm going to live... I can't let myself get so frustrated about every little thing or for the rest of my life, I'm going to just live in pure and utter frustration. And I don't want that. Mm -hmm. And that's a really strong choice to make. Yes. And so many human beings in much less severe situations are not even strong enough to make that decision to grab the bull by the horns and say, this is the ride I was given. How good can I ride it? Yeah. Well, and I think that community plays a big part in that and who we choose to surround ourselves with. Mm -hmm. And I have two incredibly loving, supportive parents and I have two amazing sisters. And now 12 years later, I have an incredible husband and friends and coaches and mentors. And so 
that plays a big piece in it. And I think, you know, 18, it wasn't just about how I responded to being paralyzed. I was young enough still that it was also really about how my mom and dad responded. My dad and my mom and dad around me responded in a very uplifting way of constant encouragement and allowing me to kind of let go again for the second time, which I can't imagine as a parent doing that. And as babies, and I still think, you know, we're babies when we're 18. We look at our parents. You're totally to, a baby to, at 18. Yeah, <laughs> to give us the signal, it's okay. Yes. You know, we look to them like when we come home from a bad situation or we do something wrong, like we we want to mimic their emotions, happy or sad. And it's pretty amazing that they, in that situation, so you're still going to live a great life. You're still going to accomplish great things. Yeah. And then you see that and you're believing that in yeah. turn. And, and so that- my, my dad actually you talked about the anniversary. And what's interesting is starting with my one-year anniversary, my dad every year on my anniversary writes me a letter. Oh. And every year he writes a letter about maybe what's happened in the past year or how far we've come in over a decade or whatever it may be. But it's always a letter that dad gives me on January 21st. And so he started that year one. And I think they really implemented just celebrating what we had in our now versus constant looking back to what was. And so that was really powerful and I think still is. And it's something we all, we all have to learn at our own pace. And sometimes it takes trauma to learn that. And it's crazy to say, but 12 years later for me, January 21st, 2008, in so many ways is become a blessing in my life. And I would have never met my husband. I wouldn't yeah. be a two-time Paralympian chasing my third games. Yeah, like, I mean, man, all of your accomplishments, including a great husband, but in- <laughs> mostly including Olympic medals in pursuit of winning a gold medal. I mean, it's one thing to say, okay, I want to swim again. It's another thing to say, I want to be one of the best in the world. Yes. When did you set that goal for yourself? Oh, gosh. It's crazy. I feel like after I was paralyzed, I was when just When did like, we go from losing to eight-year-olds <laughs> yeah. to being like, us? Well, what's the worst that can happen at this point, right? Yeah. Why not go big? Um, honestly, probably losing to eight-year-olds. And it was like, oh, I wonder if I can beat them. And then I beat one. And I was like, ooh, I wonder if I can beat someone else. And then I beat somebody else. And then in training, it'd be like, I wonder if I can not sit dead last in my lane and maybe like swim third or fourth in my lane and be faster than somebody. And did this come with just really technical, highly calculated technique and coaching on your arm movements. I mean, I'm a non-swimmer. Yeah. So how are we increasing speed? Um, and what exactly are you being coached up on to go from losing to eight-year-olds to now, hey, I'm one of the best in the world? Honestly, I think so much of it has been just like the mental determination. I mean, technique is a huge part of it. Do not get me wrong. But I could have the best technique in the world. And if I didn't figure out how to tap into how that mental fast. drive... Yeah, I wouldn't ever have done it. And for me early on, it was the, I think honestly what fueled my swimming was I was so focused on proving that I wasn't physically disabled. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, that notion was after my injury and I was now living with life with a spinal cord injury and I was kind of in the bucket of living with a physical disability, I felt like everybody looked at me as the things I was physically incapable of doing. And every time I chased that black line and I made that clock faster and faster each time I swam, it's like, well, obviously I'm not that quote unquote physically disabled if I can do that. So what else could I do? And that's a big theme. And I wanted to physically excel to like debunk that idea. And I love that. That's a big theme on your Instagram. I mean, a lot of your quotes are, you know, I'm not the, 
I'm not the limit of my abilities and I can, I can, if I want something, I can go get that thing. And there's not a limit for me, despite what society might have think or the box that you've put me in because you've seen me in a chair. Yeah. And was that mindset, what you think truly separated you going into London? I think it was, I think there was so much of, you know, again, it started with beating the eight year old and learning the stroke technique. I mean, you're spot on. Like if you don't have kick, You've got to make sure everything you're doing with those arms is as efficient as possible to move as much water as possible so you can go as fast as possible. And so there is a lot of technique that goes to it, but there's also just a lot of mental drive. Like when you get to a Paralympic games and you're lined up in finals with eight other women to some level at that point, I would argue that we all physically have what it takes to win a gold. Yeah. I would say what makes a gold medalist versus a sixth place finish sometimes has to do with who's willing to hurt more and who's willing to fight for literally every inch and stay focused in that 50 meter race or that hundred meter race or the 200 I am or whatever it may be. And sure there's some skill that goes into it. And even with eight people, there's a variance in the field. But I also think that when it comes down to that moment, I mean, the best races that I've had in my career have been when I'm laser focused and I'm all in in that moment. And that's a really hard thing to ha- make happen every single time you get behind yeah, the Yeah, as just an athlete and competitor and for the young athletes listening, how do you tap into that flow state, that laser focus? I mean, what's your prep like before a big meet? Yeah, for me, I turn all the outside noise out. You just got to put your blinders on. And there's going to be a million distractions going on around you, but you totally have to put your blinders I on. I love that quote, put your blinders on. My boyfriend disagrees with me, but that's why I just looked at him. But yes, keep telling, Olympic gold medalists, keep telling him why that's a good thing. Why that's a good thing. I just feel like, especially in the context of, in the context of a games you're in a ready room you go into a ready room 20 to 25 minutes prior and you're sitting in there and it's like you're literally hunkered down with your seven competitors in that moment and thinking you know about getting out and racing and if you let yourself get lost in that pressure you 100% lost the race before you even got it onto the pool deck and I always tell people that you can't win a race in the ready room, but you can lose a race in the ready room. Mm. And so when I go into a ready room, I always have my music on. It's blasted. My noise canceling headphones are turned all the way up. I don't listen to a soul around me. I pick a spot on the wall or floor. I stare at it. I don't make eye contact with people. It's my world. And I don't care like what is going on around me. And for me, that's getting into that zone. And that's getting laser focused. Because when you get out on the starting blocks... No matter if there's 20,000 fans or if it's silent, you have to be able to be in your world honing in on that black line that you're about to race over and be focused on you because in a race, I can't control what the girl to my left or right is going to do. I can only control what I am going to do. Mm -hmm. And so putting those blinders on and not letting that outside noise influence what I'm going to do when it comes time for my race strategy it's just what you have to do. And in order to do that, I think you have to have confidence in your training. You have to have confidence in your ability. It's not the time to start second guessing. Should I have done this or that? Like there's an element where even if you have to fake it till you make it a little bit, you boost your confidence as high as it can go when you go into a race and you don't go into ready room with doubts or you have lost and the race hasn't even started. Wow. Looking up from the water to the board and knowing you are first place. Okay. So when you, when you watch the Olympics or Paralympics, you see lights on the starting block. And so 
when you hit the wall, you'll see a series of one, two, or three lights go off on that block. And in London, they had that, and I'm almost positive in Rio, they had it. So most every games will do it. And when I hit the wall, I saw one light on my block off before I saw the screen. And for a split second, I chuckled to myself, like assuming that maybe there had been some lights burnt out. Cause I'm like, there's no way I just won. I was in sixth place at the 25 meter mark. And so I kind of did a double take. I looked up to the scoreboard. I saw my face. I heard them say Paralympic champion and I broke the Paralympic record. Oh my God. But if you watch the race over on, it's on YouTube. Every time I watch it, I see the same thing. I turn to the wall. I shake my head thinking like, no, this can't be. And I look back up and finally realize, oh, I just won a Paralympic gold medal. And then I start celebrating and get the excitement. But it was like a total delayed thing. I didn't realize it in that moment. Wow. That's incredible. I have like chills as you just describe it. I would never take that thing off. I mean, yeah. I would just wear it like underneath my blouse every day. Every, everywhere you go. <laughs> They're heavy. They're yeah. super heavy. I bet. Do you have it in like a nice place in your house? No, it's actually sitting in my pouch in the back of my wheelchair wait, right now. Wait, can I see it? Wait, <laughs> yeah. why do you have it on your pouch? Because I have meetings today and sometimes people oh. like to see the metal and oh. I keep it in a sock. Oh my gosh. Um, so it's not in some pristine place wait, in the house. Wait, this is so cool. Um, wait, it's, it's, in, a, in, a it's sock. in a sock. And the sock is, I feel like medals, especially Olympic and Paralympic medals are meant to be shared. It takes an entire village to win one, even in individual sports. You right. do not win these alone. And so oh you put all that work and people, gosh. including yourself, but all the people around you, wow. sacrifice so much that I'm like, these things are meant to be shared. This is so beautiful. So it's been held by kids. It's been dropped. Three past presidents have held it. Like It is, it's, it's it is heavy. It's head love. <laughs> wow. This is... Unlike anything I've ever held in my hands. I'm like, I'm not worthy, you know, but thanks for letting me (laughs) look at it. Wow. So it's been a modest, you know, 2000 and some odd days since September (laughs) 2nd, 2012. And I've only thought about doing it again probably every single day since. So we're rearing to go for Tokyo. Oh, I love that. And, but I want to, so I want to talk about Rio, which I remember, I know from your story, that was a close call of not knowing a lot had gone into preparing for that. And yeah. then you had an in, another accident happen, yeah. which I do want to talk about if you're okay with, because I know yeah. you've said that that was almost harder to deal with than the paralysis. A hundred percent. Why was that one such a emotional blow? I think it's a compound effect. You know, so when my arm injury happened, it happened in 2014 and it's two years out from London. We were two years out from Rio. We were right smack dab in the middle of the four year quad. And I was dreaming of Rio. I was dreaming of defending my gold medal from the London Games. I, there was so much that I wanted to still accomplish in my athletic career. And when this arm injury happened, it was catastrophic enough that in the initial weeks and months, I couldn't really wheel myself. I couldn't dress myself. I couldn't do my hair. My husband learned how to braid. And this was just a freak accident, right? In the shower of your seat broke. Yeah, the accessible shower bench in the hotel came unscrewed from the wall halfway through my shower and dropped me to the ground. And so since I'm a spinal cord injury, when, when you fall, you don't have any like muscle activation in the lower half, you fall really hard. And so I came down on my left arm. It resulted in permanent nerve damage, which is a tough pill to swallow. But I think the biggest thing that was difficult is it felt like I had to start over. So when I was paralyzed, I learned how to adapt life with two strong arms. When this happened, I didn't have two strong arms anymore. I had like one really strong arm. And one arm that didn't really want to work for me. And so 
it almost heightened my paralysis. It made me feel more paralyzed because I had less body to kind of overcompensate for what my lower half couldn't do. And just the emotional blow of, I mean, it was, it sounds simple. It's just a fall, but it was pretty traumatic. Like I, for a very, very long time, I wouldn't take a shower if I didn't have somebody around because when you fall like that as a spinal cord injury and you know, the water's running and all these things, my wheelchair's out of reach. Like I literally couldn't help myself. Luckily my husband, who was my boyfriend at the time was in the same hotel room and he came running in. But if he hadn't been there, I would have been stuck there. And like, that's a really graphically difficult thing to mentally get out of your head. Mm -hmm. And so I struggled a lot with that and struggled with knowing that I felt like I couldn't trust my own body. Mm -hmm. And so that was, that was tough. Um, I thought about retiring. That was also really tough. Luckily I thought about it for a hot second before that a loving boyfriend turned husband said, no way in a heck are you retiring? You want this too bad. We're finding a way. And then that's when Steve came into the equation, who's my coach. Uh, he was my elementary school gym teacher. One of my very first club We love coaches. elementary school gym teachers. They're we the all best. we all remember them. We <laughs> all still go play kickball and yeah. you know, scoot around on the little scooters and yeah. play with the parachutes. <laughs> uh, so I've known Steve like for majority of my life. He was one of my first club coaches when I was a kid but he coached our high school swim team. And so my two older sisters swam underneath him. He coached them through and then coached me in high school. And we just stayed in touch over the years because our family has known him for so long. Um, but he hadn't coached me after my paralysis. So in 2014, my boyfriend reached out to him and said, you know, would you be into helping Mal get back in the water? Like she's in a rough spot. And so Steve was still a teacher. He was now a high school gym teacher and had the summer off. And he's like, sure, let's do it. And I mean, I could swim like maybe 20 minutes, like two times a week. It was rough. Well, now, and it you, was really you rough. said before, it all came down to your upper body and your arms. And now you're working through a, such a severe injury in your arm that someone who was able to kick or had their legs working for them would be suffering a huge yes. blow to their performance. And then doing it now with, it was tough. It was really hard. And so we fought for Rio. I mean, we fought for Rio. I... I will not dish, diminish the amount of work I put into London and what I did to get, win a gold medal, but I don't think I fought at that point. I don't think I had fought so hard for anything. So did your goal then change from defending my gold to just making it to Rio? Yes and no. I'm kind of stubborn. You're so, still super competitive. <laughs> yes. So I had it in my head that going into Rio, not only was, I mean, yes, I needed to make Rio, which... There were times throughout, even in April of 2016, I swam in a meet in Rio for the test event and I didn't swim that great. And I came back and I was like, crap, if I perform like this in June at trials, I'm not making the team. Like I got to get it together. And we were doing the training. It's just, it was a lot of the mental and the confidence behind the starting blocks. I really had to hone in and trials came and I had probably one start to finish all seven races in there probably a meet of a lifetime. I mean, trials 2016, my coach and I crushed it. We swam so well with where my body was at, with where we were at in training. And so I felt really good going into Rio once I made the team. And when we were then in that final push of training between trials and making the team, which mind you for so long was 
just like, can we make it to Rio? And right. how I you made it. You spend four years waiting for the one day because it's different for the Paralympics, correct? You you have to wait for them to announce all these names and you find out that you've made it. It's not as yeah, black and white. it's not as immediate as Olympic trials for swimming. So like you literally finish the race, you're top two, you know you're going. For us, it's a little bit based off of an equation. So we race for three days and then the day after competition ends, we find out if we've made it. I mean, you have depending on how you swam and how you're ranking in the world, you have a pretty good idea, but it's not like an immediate, Definite. I've made the team. Right. Um, and so, you know, I get named to the team and there's all the excitement around that. I mean, how can you not after that journey? But now I came, when I came home, it's like, okay, now I've got to go defend that gold medal. And I felt that pressure of like, I had to medal in Rio or it was all a waste, which is now saying that just the most idiotic thinking I can ever imagine because I look at what we did in Rio and I didn't medal, and I'm beyond proud mm-hmm. of Rio. And I think all in, some of my best performances of my career happened in Rio. And I don't have a medal to show for it, but that's okay. I don't think you always have to win the highest accolade to have it be a success. Yes, and it I agree. totally forced me to rethink how I viewed failure and success because Rio was a huge success. I mean, there was heartbreak, but it was a success all so in. So, what's your new definition of success, knowing everything you know? I think that success comes when we are willing to put everything on the line. And if you truly can say you've put everything on the line, you have to be happy with whatever that outcome is. I don't think we, I don't think it's fair. I'll use the 200 IM as my prime example. So on September 17th of 2016, it was my last race in Rio and I had yet to medal. It was my last chance to try to make it onto that podium. And I went into the 200 IM that night in finals, seated fifth. I was in lane two. In London, when I won my gold medal in the 50 free, I was seated fifth. And in lane two, going into finals, I was like, ooh, I love I just got chills. I'm like, this is my night. I've got this. <laughs> and I got behind the starting blocks. And about 25 meters down the pool, the first row of spectator seats, I saw nine people stand strong. And those nine people were my husband, was my fiance at the time. His parents, his sister, my two sisters, my parents, and my coach. And I mean, they were decked head to toe. I always joke, like they went to Party City on July 5th, bought the clearance (laughs) section, called it an outfit, and that was my family. I love it. And that was before the race started. And then, you know, the race starts and you dive in and I fought for two minutes and 48 seconds and swam one of the best times I've ever swam in my entire career, even before my arm injury, and hit a time that I hadn't touched since 2010. And I looked up to the scoreboard and I saw a fifth place next to my name. And then I looked up to the stands and I saw nine people standing strong. And my coach was now kind of to the side and he was standing in the stairway with both arms in the air and tears streaming down his face. And I think for me, that was the moment where I realized that there's no metal in the world that would change any of the emotions I was feeling in that moment. And that was my realization that a medal is not what's determining the success. What determined success in that moment was knowing the journey it took to get there and how much we fought and knowing that I gave absolutely everything I could have given. And if that was my best on that day, then that was success. And so I think it's a little liberating at times. I mean, that's not to say that I don't have my sights set on gold because I do. (laughs) And I think about it every day. Um, But it is to say that whatever happens and however it shakes out, what's going to determine my success in Tokyo whether it's multiple gold medals or 
Uh, we're not even saying that. That's just a bad omen. Um, or not. <laughs> right. Whether it's the tangible <laughs> physical awards yes. or it's how you feel you have learned through both of those experiences happening for you yep. that I feel like almost make a way to take it off your shoulders because you know what truly defines you. And so now winning the gold, yes, that's great. We want it. But your validation is not coming from that. Yes. That's yeah. great. 100%. Oh, that's so exciting. Yes. I am rooting for you. We are pumped. I do want to segue into your relationship with your husband just because, I mean, you guys are so cute, oh. but also because so many women and girls listen to this podcast and I know that worth and being worthy of love and yeah. to be loved is a big thing. And I know you address that all the time on your Instagram is, and you mentioned beginning this misconception of, you know, am I worthy of love now that I have a disability is yeah. someone, people telling you, Oh, someone wouldn't love you because you can't walk. Yeah. How did you navigate all of those messages from society? And what were you learning along in the process of falling in love and realizing that that was all wrong? I think so much of it stemmed from, I had to learn how to love myself first. I mean, I, I really had to figure that out and I had to learn with looking in a mirror and appreciating head to toe and everything in between four wheels included what my body was and who I was as a person. And when I got to that point, that's, I think when I knew like it was ready and I had relationships before my husband and you know, they didn't work out purely because I was still growing. I was very much still growing. And I think when you're still growing, it's really hard to find who the right person is for you because you're still trying to figure out who you are. And when we met, it was, I think it was very serendipitous. Um, he was sitting by my mom and dad at the ESPYs in 2011. And that was the year that I was nominated and ended up winning my ESPY. And they didn't, they didn't really talk. He just kind of overheard them talking. And then a few weeks later, we were both at the same one year out event in New York city, a year out from the London 2012 games. And I caught him by eye and I was like, Oh, who's this cute guy? But I was in a relationship at the time and my boyfriend oh, at the time was with me and scandalous. Like, it wasn't, I, we never met that night. I just saw this like cute guy at the event that I kind of kept catching eyes with every now and then. <laughs> I was like, Oh, um, anyways, uh, moved on from that event, went back to Minnesota and I was looking for a representation and trying to figure out, you know, how I was going to navigate the sponsorship world and was looking at finding a sports agent to kind of help through all of that and got in touch with Jay and we started talking and I was vetting a few different groups and I really, really liked what he was about and what he was doing in the industry. And so um, my dad and him met cause they had a work trip that overlapped and we hadn't gotten a chance to meet in person. And I was like, perfect. You guys can meet dad. Give me the thumbs up. I'll, you know, sign on as a client. And I did. And Jay came to Minnesota a month later and he came into the pool and I had my goggles on. I lifted my goggles up and I was like, Oh my God, no, it's the hot guy from the event. <laughs> and I had no idea that that hot guy was now my, uh, my agent. That's hilarious. And so we started working together and we became great friends. And then we both ended up single around the same time and London happened and we were traveling a ton and we started realizing we're like, this feels like a lot more than just, you know, grabbing dinners and we're on the road of client dinners. Like <laughs> yeah. we were really, really close friends. And so we kind of quietly were like, maybe we try dating. And we were super, I mean, our families knew and our close friends knew, but it was really, 
actually an incredibly special time looking back because we didn't share it with the world until we got engaged. So it wasn't like, you know, on social, but like, I didn't feel the pressure of like, right. Oh, I got to show my boyfriend off to social media. It was just your little special it was secret just our thing. Mm-hmm. And our families knew and our friends knew, and we got to grow with that. But it was kind of away from the noise of the world. And then we got engaged and we spent a few days calling all of our colleagues and friends in the industry and sharing the news and posted it to the world a few days after we got engaged. And it was so fun to hear people's responses of so many people were like, well, duh, you guys have been together forever. We all knew it. Or there were people that were like, oh, thank goodness. Because if you weren't, we were going to try to play matchmaker. <laughs> oh, that's I think so we only cute. had one person that was like, really? I had no idea. And yeah. I was like, well. That's funny. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, that's amazing. We've now been married three years. And what has that told you about all the misconceptions that were told to you about relationships and love and self-worth? Oh, so much. And I, you know, we still face ignorance. I would be a hundred percent lying if I said we did it. Just from I've, comments from strangers. Comments. I've, I've had people tell me good for him for sacrificing his future to follow his heart and marry someone like you. I've had all of it. And I know he's had a lot of it that he probably doesn't even share with me. Um, but it's one of those things where I think that at the end of the day, we all need to do what we need to do to make ourselves happy, but we also all deserve to know what great is. And him and I have both talked about that. We were both have had previous relationships before each other. And I think so often we allow ourselves to settle for good because we don't think we're worthy of great. And I think we need to challenge ourselves and realize that we're worthy of it. And we all deserve to know what great is. And for us, that was finding one another and saying to heck with it. We didn't care if people thought it was, you know, taboo that I was dating my agent or whatever it was like that's what was good for us Mm -hmm. and we've been married for three years we own a business together like we have a beautiful life together and you know if people want to look at us and see the chick in the wheelchair and wonder what a guy is doing with a girl in a wheelchair that's on them that's not on me and I think there's some of that that we all have to learn when you when you know your self-worth and you start to understand who you are to your core and what your worth is it helps you deflect those comments wherever they're coming from, whoever it is that's telling you you're not good enough, whether it's yourself or other people, wherever that is coming from, knowing your self-worth, I think allows you to deflect and realize at the end of the day, those comments are a reflection of that person, not a reflection of you. And so I don't know. I feel like I learned a lot, obviously, yes, through my paralysis. I've learned a lot through my career and I learned a lot after my arm injury again, But I also learned a lot through our own journey and, you know, what we've been through together as a couple and what building a life with a partner truly means. I love love. I I feel like in society, we're just like, oh, you people are married. But really, it's like, oh, my God, you have found the person. You're going to make this commitment. I'm like so happy for you. You know, I like it's the best thing. You even mentioned chick flicks in the beginning. Ah, oh, that you is know. so cute. And congratulations on three years. That is Thank so exciting. Yes. Um, wow. I mean, this has been amazing. I guess the very last thing I want to ask you is yes. what do you hope to do by sharing your story? Oh gosh, that's a loaded question. <laughs> just a quick ender just question. Just a quick ending question. Just spit out just your just answer. Spit out the answer. Yeah. You know, somebody who has a million dreams moving in all directions <laughs> at all times. I mean, I guess at the bare minimum, you know, what's your hope in spreading what you've been through in your story? Yeah. I think so much of it, there's a, there's a few layers to it in all reality. There's 
my own personal experience is obviously I, I would really like to encourage other people to understand that we are all stronger than we give ourselves credit for. And whether it's living with a physical disability or having experienced trauma in your life or having a set of circumstances that society says aren't normal, um, whatever that is, I think that realization of to the point of self-worth and understanding that we all have that strength to get through whatever's thrown our way and our circumstances aren't our defining factor. The choices we make moving forward are, and we all have that power to make those choices. So I think there's that from the personal message. I think when you look at it from disability, a huge, huge, huge part of what I do and what I hope to change is the perception. We've got to change perception of disability in our society. There's so many misconceptions out there and frankly, ignorance. And a lot of the ignorance just stems from people don't know what they don't know. Some of it does stem from people just don't like things that are different, Mm -hmm. but I would say the majority of it is people don't know what they don't know. And so finding a way to educate and, and bring it all to the same playing field of realizing like whether it's four year, four wheels, a prosthetic, whether it's a visual impairment, whatever it is, mental health, like we're all just people to the core. Mm -hmm. Um, and then my husband and I, now we own a business together. And so through that, we've really been focusing on utilizing the power of storytelling. So We have a production studio and we've enjoyed really being able to go out and share other incredible stories in a way that really sparks that conversation. And so it's a lot of things, but I think really at its core, it's changing perception and sparking a conversation because that's the only way true change happens. Thank you. And thank you for, I mean, you did all that. I think here today, especially with me, like I hearing everything and learning from you and it is true. It's what we don't know. And I think it's also this fear of asking the wrong question or offending. And, um, you know, I, I love your Instagram posts, reading all your captions today. And I love misconception Monday. I mean, I think everything you're doing is wonderful. So kudos to you. And I'm, we're rooting for you in Tokyo. Oh, that's going to be so special. This is the final run. Oh, oh, wow. I want to go as a Thank mama. you so much oh, for listening wow. to this the Real Pod with Mallory oh Wegman. God. If you enjoyed this podcast just as much as I did, make sure that you follow Mallory on Instagram. It is just her name, Mallory Wegman, spelt W-E-G-G-E-M-A-N-N. And make sure you rate and subscribe and like this podcast if you enjoyed the episode. We are back every Wednesday with new episodes, new awesome guests, and new real conversations. Hope you have an awesome week. Let's get it.